In this episode of Coffee with Closers, I'm sitting down with Jenny Campbell, the president and CEO of Stuart Steelwood Investments. During my conversation, Jenny shares her experience in building multiple companies and now how as, as she as an investor, what she looks for in corporations that she's investing into, and specifically what she looks for in founders. So stay tuned for our conversation with Jenny Campbell. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, Jenny, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. Well, thank you very much for having me, Samuel. It's an absolute honor and pleasure. Awesome, awesome. Well, obviously for the audience, that my audience who may not have heard of you, can you share a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, my name is Jenny Campbell. Um, I actually started off in the meeting planning industry. Um, I was a small business owner of a private uh, meeting planning firm where I concentrated on C-level meetings. Um, and then after that, I opened a second company that was a marketing and meeting planning firm. And now I am the CEO of Stuart Steelwood Investments, uh, which is part of a venture capital company. And I'm also an ambassador and CEO in the Stuart Lodges at Steelwood, which is a small business. Awesome. So everyone has a, has a story of how they overcome obstacles to, to become an entrepreneur. Uh, can, you, can you look back and share something about how you became an entrepreneur, the aspiration for becoming an entrepreneur, and how that took you sure. to where you are today? Sure. Uh, well, I, I personally believe out of every adversity comes a wonderful door of opportunity. We just have to be able to uh, push through the adversity and keep our mind open to be able to see that wonderful door of opportunity because it pushes us to, to discover a self of ours that we've never had before. Um, and that's when I realized I was an entrepreneur. Um, my degree from Tulane University was actually in biological illustration. I used mm -hmm. to do anatomical drawings uh, for attorneys and uh, for doctors. And um, what I realized was that I missed the interaction of people. But what I used to always do on the side that I learned from my mother was nonprofit events. I love planning nonprofit events and giving back to my community. My mother was very active in it and it was something we could do together. Well, um, soon after I graduated from college, my mother came down with a very aggressive form of cancer. Um, and my mother and I were super close. Uh, she was always my mentor and my model. Uh, she showed me that being a female, I could still have education, I could be smart, yet still raise a family and still be good to my community. And so when my mother became ill, one of the things that she taught me was how you handle adversity was understanding adversity. So I became very involved in the American Cancer Society and I wanted to learn everything I could um, about cancer and the education of cancer. And so again, long story short, um, I ended up doing a fundraiser in honor of my mother. Um, I used to play tennis, so I ended up doing a tennis black tie event. Um, this was back in uh, the early 90s uh, and ended up raising about 
$36,000 clear for the American Cancer Society. And what really intrigued me was um, that my mother went through a program at NIH, experimental programs, and I realized how important it was to raise money for experimental causes. So what drove me was my passion to do something in honor of my mother. Well, the reason why this is so important was that I realized the importance of business is about relationships and it's about integrity. And so what happened was I had this passion of going around to the business community and just asking them would they support this cause. I ended up having this attorney, his name was Harvey Cook, uh, that was very taken by my cause, became my major sponsor of the tournament. Soon after that, he came to me and said, uh, Jenny, I'm involved in the Republican National Convention, and I would like you to produce the events that I'm in charge of. And my response back to him was, well, I would love to do it, but I do these for free. I don't charge for it. And his response back to me was, Jenny, there's a profession at this. You are good at this. You figure out what to charge me, come back to me, and I want to hire you. So I really started thinking about it and saying, this is a way I could combine my business acumen with my creative side. And so I researched, found an organization called Meeting Professionals International, learned a lot about the events industry, and so decided uh, to put together a contract. He accepted it. I produced the events. At that time, I was teaching high school biology and art, and um, he came to me and said, I would like to hire you to do more events, but I need you to be able to work at this full time. So I went to my father and I said, I think I have more of a chance in a future of opening up my own company, producing events such as these, than I do for where I am now. And so my father asked me to write a business plan and put it together. I will tell you what was funny. I didn't take it seriously at first and he rejected me twice. And the third time he told me I needed to get serious about this or he wasn't even going to look at it. Third time I did, um, he accepted my plan and my father was the first funder um, in the company I had that was called JME or Jenny McNeil Enterprises. Um, that ended up being a meeting planning company in which I specialized in C-level events doing very customized original events um, and did very well uh, with that company. So, you know, I just sort of through a, a cause that was so genuine to my heart, it made me discover a side that I had. I never thought of myself as a risk taker, but I found what gave me fuel and what gave me passion was having a vision, seeing it, and just saying, I'm going for it, which was so counterintuitive to what I was before. But what I found was I absolutely loved it. So ever since then, I've been an entrepreneur. Yeah, and I think they say, you know, if you find what you're passionate about and if you do what you're passionate about, you'll never work in one day in your life, right? So it seems like that's you're, your story. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, um, with different mentees that I work with now, I tell them, always look for your passion. You might not know it right away. It took me a while to discover mine. 
But once you find it, you never work a day in your life. And people that know me say, Jenny, you're always working on something. But see, I don't see it as that. I see it as goals. I see it as a vision. And I love to see the vision happen. So um, I, don't, I don't view it as working. I view it as doing what I love to do. Which is what I think entrepreneurs usually have, right? That vision and the big, big dream of something bigger than what they are. Where are they right now? And that, that that's what empowers them to just keep going, at, going at it, even when things doesn't go the way they expected. So obviously, right. you know, in your opening, you've kind of mentioned your entrepreneurial journey, and you talked about the different things you've done. You, you're an entrepreneur by, you know, by by trade. You're also an investor. You're also a writer. Um, there's so many things that you're involved in and obviously over these years you've done so much what is one thing that you're super proud of the one thing that I'm super proud of is that I believe in a couple of cases with young mentees that I've worked with I've really made a difference in their lives I help them find who they were and and help them show how even in the darkest times you can find direction and it's all about yourself and self-discipline that pulls you out of it and when i see they realize that then i know they're going to be okay for the rest of their life so the biggest thing to me is i want to make an impact on others just like my mentor has done for me by giving my time my knowledge and my experience and when I see somebody really take that and it's made a difference and an impact on them, it's the greatest gift that you could ever give me. Yeah, and I think a lot of times entrepreneurs underestimate how important it is to have mentors uh, that can invest in you and they also don't reinvest into other people because they say, well, I'm super busy right now. I don't have time to actually have a mentee that I can mentor, right? And I think you have a lot of stories of uh, such experiences, which what your co-founder, who is part of your investment um, company, is I have been your mentor for over 30 years. Do you want to share a little bit about yeah. that story? Yeah, I um, actually it was sort of funny. I met Mr. Stewart. I was the opening speaker for the Boy Scouts conference in New Orleans, Louisiana. It was back when I had my meeting planning firm, and I spoke on the steps, 11 steps of self leadership. And basically what I talked about there was how I thought how important it was that you understood your core values and how your core values in your personal life transfer over to your business life. And you use those to build businesses and that's how you build successful clients and successful businesses. Well, he was very taken by the talk that I gave and he gave up, he came up to me and uh, after I spoke and he said, I'd really like to get to know you. And what was sort of funny, you got to remember, I was a young woman in my early 30s back then. And I'm thinking, I know who this man is. He's a very successful businessman in New Orleans. And I'm thinking to myself, OK, Jenny, you have to be cool. Don't act stupid or something like that. And um, sure enough, he called me a couple of weeks later at my office and said, I'd like to come over and meet with you and see your office. So. I remember when my secretary called me, I told her, clear my day, make the appointment. But, you know, the fact that he's coming over to see me just meant the world to me. Again, long story short, he ended up spending the entire day with me. Um, he was very intrigued how my company started, and I explained to him it started out of dealing with the illness with my mother. 
and how my father was the investor and um, he was a, a, a physician and surgeon at a hospital and my office, first office, happened to be in a medical building um, because I needed to be close to my mother. But then I realized that all of those doctors in that building could be clients of mine. So I took advantage of that. That's how I learned to pivot and understand businesses, how you can make businesses work for the situations um, that you're in. He was impressed by all of that and he would just say, uh, Jenny, anytime you need help, please feel free to reach out to me. So you, you have to realize this has been a 30 year relationship of where it's been earned respect. And um, when I truly had a business issue, I would reach out to him. He was very intrigued about what I was doing. When I moved away for a while to Texas, he kept in touch with me there. Then he asked me to start doing projects for him. Uh, then he, he talked me into coming back to New Orleans. Um, and from there, our relationship grew. And then in 2009, when I decided to shut down the second company I had, that's when he came to me and asked me what I consider being the CEO of Stewart Steelwood Investments. And I have to tell you, my first answer to him was no. And the reason why it was no was I told him, because he asked me why. And I said, Frank, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I'm afraid if I worked for somebody, it would ruin our relationship. I don't know if I can make that, that choice. He got me to see, he said, well, what if I gave you full autonomy? And he said, Jenny, when you owned your company, he said, didn't you have to either answer to an investor or a bank? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, think about me as your bank. So when he put it to me that way, then I said, well, I'll give it a try. Let's see how it is. Um, and that's where I've been ever since 2009. And then him and I uh, started the uh, Stewart Lodges, which is a dream of ours, which is a combination of my meeting planning background, where we take care of high level, sea level meetings, private, exclusive, small meetings on a beautiful 1200 acre property uh, with a golf course and everything like that. So this, this final small business that we have is sort of his dream and my dream coming together. So it's very much a, a business from the heart from both of us. But I would say the most important thing that my mentor guided me through was even when I told him no on things, he would guide me to the right decision. And he respected the fact that I told him I was afraid of, I couldn't work in that kind of environment because I wanted to be able to achieve. And he made me see that no matter who you are, even as an entrepreneur, you always answer to somebody, right? And so it's having that respected relationship and he truly did give me the autonomy. Now with autonomy comes responsibility. And there are times I made great decisions and there are times I didn't make so good of decisions. But he handled it in such a way that he coached me behind the scenes and then told me I needed to go take care of and repair the decision I made instead of him circumventing me. And that was a huge lesson I learned from him. And that's what I try to do to my mentees is constantly coach them 
but always put them in the leadership role because if they're going to be a respected leader, that is built over years of people seeing you make decisions, both good and bad. How do you handle them? Um, so I know that was a very long answer, but that's the best way I could describe it. We are still very close. In fact, we live next door to each other. Um, my husband and his wife um, and uh, the four of us have become very good friends. And, um, you know, there's just this long-term earned respect, both on a personal and professional level. And that's what I hope to get back someday to some of the mentees that I work with. And I currently, right now, uh, work with two females and one male mentee. That's awesome to hear. And I think you have to be intentional about finding mentors because if you don't, you can just sit around always saying, I'm super busy, I don't have time for it. Um, I just, you know, here and there read some books. And I think that that's just a mode that most business owners get into, but they don't understand they can actually almost accelerate their growth if they can find somebody who's done what they're trying to do five years ago or 10 years ago, right? And the reason why I even started this podcast was somewhat selfish because I read a lot of books and I know when you and I spoke last time, you told me that I need to read The Blue Ocean and some of the other books that you've mentioned yeah. to me. But I also found it super engaging to just ask other entrepreneurs who actually went before me and who's, who had the similar challenges and also just picking their brains about what is their mindset like, what, what drives them, right? What motivates them? And then where do they find the passion to keep going? Right. So I think and I, I think the most important thing to remember, and I see this even in my mentor that's 84 years old right now, is that a true CEO, a true entrepreneur never stops learning because the world is always changing. People are changing. And if you're going to be a true leader, you need to be um, informed, um, both within fact, facts and opinions of everything that's going on around you so that you can make the right decision uh, for the organizations that you're with. That's what leadership is about. Mm -hmm. um, it's about learning to gather information and, and making the best decision you can uh, to help you reach those goals and objectives that you're trying to reach. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you feel like you're out on a limb. Sometimes you feel like you're the only one there. But a true leader will lead with the conviction of their vision. And when people start to see it, they start to follow. They don't need the masses around them initially. True leadership is really within, and it's a belief within, and it's a belief in a vision, a path, and a goal. It's mm, a great, great point. And I have a question about, because you talked about challenges, you talked about you know, how someone needs to be continuously learning and, and also trying to figure out what's happening around them and trying to pivot. And you've talked about you know, some of the things you had to do uh, in terms of how the business needs to pivot. Just recently, you published an article where you wrote about changes, challenges, and choices which was kind of um, came out of the what's going on in the world with COVID-19 and all that. Can you elaborate a little bit about what you meant by that, uh, those three, uh, three, three C's? Yeah, yeah it, really how that article came about. Um, I was talking to several people um, because our investment was hit very hard um, uh, from what happened with COVID-19. And people were asking me, well, what are you doing? What is the VC side doing? How are y'all looking at this? And um, so I tell them, you know, what I start doing to bring continuity and strength to me is I start reading a lot. 
and I start trying to grab every piece of um, uh, information there is around me. So I wanted to learn about the virus first. Then I wanted to totally understand the global economics. I knew the economics for 2019, but it totally flipped on its head in 2020, right? So, you know, so you have all this sea of information around you and it's just swirling around in your head and you're trying to think about it. Well, I go through what I call a mind mapping process where I bring order to chaos and I start thinking from my analytical mind rather than my creative mind. So having this conversation with a friend of mine, I was telling him how I was thinking about it. He was like, you need to capture this. He said, this would help so many people. He said, I always knew you had some kind of process because I've known you for years and seen you work through different situations. And so I took him seriously. So one night I just couldn't sleep and I got up and tried to document and I called it my mind mapping process. So the current situation I was going through was the coronavirus COVID-19, right? And how it affects some businesses. So I started thinking of, I went back to my education. I have my master's in project management and I went back and I started thinking, okay, the first thing you have to do is decide what type of event this is, what type of crisis it is. There's two basic types of crises. There's what they call the event-driven and the process-driven. Well, why that's important is event-driven, for example, like a 9-11 or a Katrina, is a crisis that happens with magnitude, but it's over. And you immediately move into recovery. So your, your, passive, your process of recovering starts from recovery, and you set a path, and you have a goal to get to at the end. Now, with a process-driven crisis, which is what coronavirus COVID-19 is, is you have a beginning, you have an acceleration, an apex, a deceleration, and then recovery. And that's critical, because what happens from the, the acceleration to the apex to the deceleration is the unknown. You don't know what the recovery looks like. So during that phase, you have to be nimble, you have to be willing to pivot, you have to be willing to shift, you have to be informed, you have to be able to decipher fact from fiction, fact from opinion, and then figure how does that impact or how does that align with my organization. So with coronavirus COVID-19, we're definitely in a crisis-driven event. We are still in the acceleration stage yet. We have not achieved the apex yet. That will probably happen sometime after the flu season. Um, we're saying early fall um, into winter of next year. Once we get to that and a vaccine has been tested, developed it, and most important, distributed, then you can start to move in recovery because people will now have a choice to protect themselves and to protect their fear. Whereas right now, you're basing it on social responsibility. And so that's where people's underlying fear lines. And with underlying fear, 
That's why you don't have a clear direction. We're getting close to a clear direction, but it's not quite there yet. So what do we do during that time? Is this is a time for us to really self-analyze our companies and figure out, can our products or services pivot, adjust? Can we take advantage of the situation or not? Um, and where do we fall in the spectrum? Were we a company that our products and services accelerated during this time? Did we sustain during this time or were we totally devastated? All of them are three different effects and you can survive all three if you understand which one you're in. Um, in my case with the Stewart Lodges, we were in the devastated. We lost all of our clients. We lost our pipeline uh, because first of all, we were closed down because the state closed us down. Now we're back open again, but now there's corporate policies where people can't travel. But we're doing okay because we've learned how to pivot. And one of the things was that I realized, and the most important thing I think in business, and, and I was thinking about this last night, the most critical um, component that you can understand in business is if you truly understand your customer and understand what their current needs are and you can be part of a solution to address those needs, you will have that customer for life. So what are we in now? We're having to constantly pivot because our customer needs are changing, right? And you heard me say with the Stewart Lodges, you know, our client base, which was very strong, has all pulled back, no more meetings, no more travel. Well, I started thinking, who could really use my services, the privacy, the ability to bring people together? I was thinking, who could use that privacy exclusivity side that our clients love so much? And I started thinking the hospitals, especially when they get at maximum capacity, are bringing in additional doctors and nurses, or those doctors or nurses are even choosing not to go home to their families because of the exposure levels uh, to their families. So I have very good relationships with all the CEOs in those areas who come to us for their strategic planning meetings. So I contacted them, let them know that we were available they love the idea of it. So if that need comes up, I've now positioned our company to be able to take advantage of that, which could help us recover some of the revenues. At the same time too, knowing that the majority of my business is contracted and will be contracted to probably third quarter of 21, I've moved the company into what we call sustainable mode where I've made basic cuts across the board. I've scaled back on some of the marketing side of it, um, as well as uh, uh, got um, my employees more in line with it, number of employees, et cetera, like that. But always watching the meter, so to speak, that when the opportunity comes that we need to staff up again, we will have the ability to do that. So what I had to do right now is what we call right-sizing, right-sizing the organization so it can weather out and sustain through the storm so that we can be positioned well to take advantage of the opportunity on the back end.
Yeah, those are some great points of in terms of uh, adoption, and you're talking about those three C's that you had to do. And obviously, through your last 30 some years of being an entrepreneur, there has been a lot of changes. And I know when you and I were talking earlier, you talked about you know the early days when you started. You know, you were kind of the first to get a, a, a fax machine, uh, introducing a fax <laughs> machine, or, or even getting a web page for the first time. Your which your 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 brother helped you build the first website, which led you to get some really reputable names as customers. So can you share a little bit about that, the, your journey of where you are faced with the, you know, technological advancement, where were you ever resistant to change or adapting new things? And if so, how, adapting or not adapting, how has that affected your business and your, your growth? Yeah, I think the best way to start it out talking about when I started in business and when I was in college and um, even school, I would say I was more right brain than left brain, okay? And um, I always had, I was always, you know how they say you're sitting in school and I would do my work, but my brain was thinking 10 miles ahead. Um, I was also an artist, I loved to draw, so I was doodling all the time and I loved music. So I always found those were my ways that I could um, really tap into my creativity and my parents really encouraged that too as well. But I was fortunate enough to have, uh, to be very strong in the science and math side. But I preferred the creative side, so to speak. So the first companies I had, I would call it true entrepreneurial, where I was very much the visionary. I went after the dream because I just said, I could see it, I can do it, and all that kind of stuff. And I just sort of let other people worry about the finances. You know, it was like, no, I'm the creative one. I'm the one that comes up with the ideas. Well, what I realized was um, through the different companies I had was how important it was that you understand your numbers and what do those numbers mean. I also learned very early on from my father that he would always say, push yourself to be more comfortable in the areas you're less comfortable in. So I would really push myself to try to understand numbers because now I like dealing with them. I was before, let me delegate that. I don't want to deal with it, okay? Now I realize how important that is and how much that guides me as a foundation to making better decisions. And once I get those factual informations out of the way, then I can really tap into my creative side. So how did that all happen? Well, when I had my first company, like I said, my brother was a computer programmer and he was working on a project in school and they were coming up with the first web pages. So he asked me, can I create a web page for you? And I was like, what's a web page, you know? And he thought it was so neat because he actually had the name of my company, not AOL.com, but the name of my company. So it was one little page that had a bio about my company and myself and what we did, and it was out there. Well, I ended up picking up a very nice large size client out of New York, and their response was, we were looking for a company down in Louisiana, and you were the only company that had a web page. So they called me, they came down, they met with me, I went up there for an interview, and that started a really nice relationship uh, with doing business uh, for them. So, you know, I was fortunate to be around different ideas or entrepreneurial ideas. And my idea was, why not? Let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. Um, and so then I started realizing how important 
creativity is very important on the forefront and vision. But if you don't implement that vision correctly, that's where the failure comes in. And that's where I got very, very interested in project management and decided to go back to school. I went to George Washington University and got my master's in project management and my PMP certification. I also, prior to that, and received my CMP and my CMM in the meetings industry, which are the designations in those industries. And to these days, I keep up all three of those designations because I think it's important to still be involved in those industries to a point that maybe I can share with others and give back to them. And they do somewhat indirectly, you know, affect what I do now because we do invest in hotel properties, et cetera, like that. So that does help. So it's a combination of realizing that the education is the foundation and knowledge is the foundation to keeping your company or your dream alive um, and to keeping it stable. And just like a time that we're in now, I'm having to go back to my true left brain side and my analytical side and say, I'm having to make the really hard decisions right now to make sure I can sustain so I will be here when that new opportunity opens up. Whereas if I would not address those financial situations right now, I'd end up driving the company to where you'd have to close it. Um, and so that was something I've learned over the years. It took me time uh, to get there, but now I see it as a very, very critical component of business and the best recommendation that I can give to any CEO or any business owner is develop both sides of your brain. Uh, we all have a natural tendency, but develop the side that's not as natural. You don't have to be the expert, but at least understand, be able to interpret, and be able to, to understand how that information comes together as one. I think that rounds you out, and it helps you get through crisis better. Yeah, it's super critical because, like you said, most entrepreneurs are uh, visionaries and they they like the you know big picture stuff and they don't want to get into the nutty gritty stuff of okay, PN, you know, how do I read the P and L and understand the numbers and all those things and it's not exciting enough, right? That's just that's right. what happened in the past. I don't necessarily want to look at that. Let me let me see what the future holds, uh, right? And they they love the big forecasting of oh here's where we're going to go revenue wise and all those different things. But I think if you don't understand it, the problem is you can't ask the right questions and if you can't ask the right questions then you're, you're not going to make the right decisions. And that's also a, a big problem uh, entrepreneurs have. Well, um, a, a huge thing I would say, uh, takeaway that I took back from my project management days, and it comes out in that article too. If you can identify what the problem is or what the process is, either way, it doesn't have to be a problem. And then you monitor and track it and you let the numbers tell you what is going on, then you can pivot and adjust before you get blindsided at the end and say, you know, I'm $2 million in debt. I should have pivoted back here. So what was very critical to me that I learned through the project management um, part in my life was the importance of understanding what the situation is, the monitoring and tracking and the interpretation of that information that that gives you a very good solid base to help you make decisions for marketing, help you make decisions how to pivot 
and change your product to meet the needs of the customer. Um, instead of waiting to say, oh God, I just lost every customer I have and I have zero revenues. Um, so CEO to be successful, uh, every month um, you should look at, for me, I look at what I call KPIs, key performing indexes. And what I, I look at there are what are the critical components that could affect my com company, the success of my company. And you figure out what those are. Now, this is my art side coming in. It's definitely a numbers report, but then I have it converted to graphs. So when I'm looking at it on a monthly um, basis, I see a dashboard of different graphs and I can see very quickly where there's a problem in a company just by how a graph looks. And then I can dig down deeper into the finances to find out exactly what the problem is. Um, and so it, it helps me keep a very a better pulse on the health of the organization at that moment. Not in the past and not in the future, but at that moment. And especially in times like this, it changes weekly and sometimes daily, um, you know, how that health is. So I'm looking at those constantly and we have it tied in into our numbers so that when my accountant is updating my PELs and change that, it automatically changes the numbers on the graphs. I'm not necessarily looking at the details of the numbers until I feel like I need to. I know how the graphs need to look, to look steady, to look healthy, and to look like you're in trouble. So that dictates to me how much I dig backwards for detail. Most certainly, and I think one of the things that you've mentioned earlier where you talked about you know, the, the lag measure versus the lead measure, right? leading indicators. A lot of times, I think business owners, uh, by the time they catch the number, it's kind of too late to influence that number because a lot of the leading indicators were not influenced, right? For example, let's just say we're talking about sales. You, you touched on the whole idea of sales pipeline where if you want to have a healthy outcome in terms of what the revenue is, you have to influence the sales pipeline, but that just doesn't stop with the proposals that gave up give out right that that really starts with the opportunity the meetings that you've had the conversations that led to a proposal that ultimately turned into a negotiation that closed in one right so i think it's very very critical that you understand the entire journey of whatever that you are measuring the journey and i would say most importantly the buying patterns of your customer okay mm -hmm. buying patterns are tied directly to economy uh, you mm -hmm. know so um, that helps you understand and then you go back to the needs, right? Um, and so if you have to shift a little bit, then you shift. You still have the same product and service, but now you're, you're getting the customer to see if it's a current need rather than what they thought the need was um, before. So um, it's, it's like a moving target. You know, that's how business is. Nothing is ever totally steady, right? Most certainly. And I think, you know, a couple of questions that I have is obviously your, your venture company now, you invest in other corp, uh, companies, especially the ones in, uh, in the hospitality sector. So, you know, it's one thing to look at the numbers, that's your numbers, that's your business. Hey, what do I need to look at? Revenue, expenses, um, margins, profits, all sorts of other stuff. But when you're actually looking to invest in a company, what really are you looking at in terms of figuring out, is this a company that I want to invest in? Is it the idea, is it the revenue that they have, the, the opportunity that they have in terms of where the market is, or is it the person that you're investing in? What are some of the criteria that you look at before you actually invest in a company? 
Well, there's there's several things that I look at, and you touched on three of them. First of all, definitely, is there a vision, and is there a person associated with that vision? Is there a passion behind it? Um, vision is sold by passion and by resilience and by commitment. But then I also have to know that you're responsible with financials. And that's where I find especially a lot of small businesses uh, come in not quite prepared. Uh, they're not really at that stage to talk with us yet um, because you need to have very solid financials, okay? Um, and what do I mean by that? You have to show me that you spend with intent and purpose and you, you take responsibility for the decisions that are made. Now, we all understand you have to invest capital to create growth, right? But I want to make sure that you're managing against that capital. You're not going to wait till it's all over and say, oops, it didn't work. Okay? Is what, what measurements do you have in place that are going to tell you either am I on track or not on track? Because think about it. With all new ideas, they shift and change as you learn more information, right? So that's what we want to know is that you are you have a good hold on your financials. You understand what your P&L is. I'm not asking you to create them. I'm asking you to understand them and tell me what they think. Um, you know, and then, then from those, I, the very first question I ask people is what are your KPIs? Your KPIs come out of your financial statements. And if an entrepreneur can tell me that right away, then I know that he understands and he's watching or she's watching, um, you know, how her company um, is a player uh, in the market that they're in. If, if I can see and then they're like, well, I've never really thought about that, then that's a huge risk to me. Um, so you have to balance the understanding with financials as well as the risk taking of an entrepreneur okay so um, the other thing that I would say too that I see is remember when you do get an opportunity uh, to talk to an investor or a VC company you take it very seriously you take it as it's a first interview you get one shot to get in front of a uh, investor or an entrepreneur and if they see what they like or they see there's potential there you'll get another meeting I see a lot where people come in very ill prepared um, they're not prepared you should always know your financials good and bad and you don't have to necessarily be making money for it to be positive you got to show me that you have a time frame in which you believe it will return and how are you going to control those costs to make sure you do have that profit level? Um, mm -hmm. At the end, do you have good processes in place? Um, um, have you thought about how you would expand if you did have to expand? Um, you know, have you researched the market uh, where you are? Are you trying to be the market leader or are you trying to be a player in there? You know, what is your ultimate dream for your company? Are you building it to grow? Are you building it to sell? What What are you trying to do? Uh, so I call it the BHAG goal. Give me your BHAG goal and then work backwards um, for it. But always the financials being the core 
of what runs you. And let me tell you, in small businesses, you don't have to have a complicated financial statement. You have expenses, you have revenues or in assets coming in. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a, a complex statement. Mm -hmm but it's still a full statement of, of activities, financial activities that you have. Yeah, it's almost not like, like going to the, Yeah, go not ahead. checkbook financing, you know? That's Most certainly, yeah, and it's almost like yeah. going to the doctors, right? Like you, you gotta do that health check and it should be able to tell you what's the health of your company. Are you bleeding or are you um, healthy right. and, and uh, energetic? And one thing, I just a, I guess a quick little plug in there, one of the programs that I think is great for entrepreneurs and relatively inexpensive and very easily to use is QuickBooks. Mm -hmm. It can produce the kind of reports that we're looking for. It helps you set up the right kind of chart of accounts is what it's called. And as you, you start expanding your company, you can get more detailed. A lot of where a company uh, loses money is cost of goods or cost of services in order to perform the product and it starts squeezing their profitability and they're not realizing that they're 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 spending more money to get that client I would just start early with that you can start it simple and then make it more complex as your company grows but always be passionate about it um, be committed to it you have to be hundred and ten percent in not ninety percent so I have a couple of questions about, right, when you talked about what you look in investing in a company, are there any rule of thumbs that you've seen in terms of the health, health of a company just by measuring revenue per head or any of that, any of those metrics that you can quickly realize, hey, is this company has their metric in a healthy manner, right? Like, hey, are they bleeding cash or are they, do they have a very proportionate growth trajectory every time they add a, a new account, well, this is what the revenue would be or anything like that that you can use as a rule of thumb yeah well I'd break it up if it's in a service industry um, mm -hmm. what I really look at is the proportions of cost of goods sold um, so your net profit not your gross profit mm -hmm. um, because the net profit is again the money that's going to the company uh, to to pay the additional expenses as well as any profitability to the owners. So where services can get into trouble is when their cost of goods are so out of the line by what they charge. There's they in other words, I'll just put it very simply. You could sell a million dollars worth of business, but if you're spending a million five to produce it, you're never going to make a profit. Mm -hmm. So. Um, a cost of goods is a big one we look for in the service industry. On a product side, we look at, you know, first of all, is this something that can be widely distributed? Is this something that we would, um, it has the ability to go into distribution channels. Um, when you get into distribution, then you can get into economies of scale of production so your cost per unit goes out so to answer your question the formula that I look at it's very simple revenue per unit over cost per unit if you're making it a profit it would be greater than one mm -hmm. one is breaking even anything under that you're losing money so for example in the hospitality industry your cost per unit would be like your room nights Okay, so what is that physically costing me when somebody stays at the hotel? 
and that includes everything in it from service to whatever not food and beverage but you know whatever it takes housekeeping etc like that and you figure out what that cost per unit is or what they call rep par and then um, then you look at well what is my revenue and then most importantly what will the market bear let's say you're what you need to charge for your revenue to be at break even or greater is more than the market could bear is that a, a potential for being a successful product probably not that's the simplest way i can put it um mm -hmm. to you yeah and i think one question one question that i had was about the service industry because that's the one that's a little bit harder to measure some of those metrics because the only asset that you have is is human capital it's hours and right. you know you're trading hours for dollars and it's it's a lot harder because especially when you you're, you've been in the service bef business before you're doing event management so have you seen what is that quick way to realize okay is this a successful business are we spending more than half of our revenue on people and uh, yeah. and the rest is going toward all the other expenses whether it be vendors or rent and all sorts of other stuff like that is there any kind of rule of thumb that you've seen to work especially when Again, you're investing? that's where it's real important to track your cost of goods and cost mm -hmm. of goods mean cost of services um, mm -hmm. with that because you'll start to realize real soon that when you start taking people's salaries and you're di you're dividing it up either by the number of rooms you have etc like that then what the cost is if you're in a very customer centric type organization your capital per personnel is going to be higher which means your cost is higher which means you should charge more for the event well those customers because they're very targeted customers are used to paying more because what they want is service right mm -hmm. uh, we're an economic based company it's more of let me see what kind of deal I can get yet they're willing to take an attrition and customer loss because people will jump from company mm -hmm. to company to get the better deal so um, you know services are a little bit harder to manage you have to have a very tight control on it and that you understand you know what personnel touches the customer and that all comes into that cost per unit um, a lot of times companies you know forget to put those in and then they don't understand well why am I not making money at the end so mm -hmm. your net profit is very important in, in um, the service industry versus your gross profit because a lot of times especially events industry it costs a lot of money to produce these events so it can look like you're making a lot of money but you're really not when you get into what the actual profit margins are most certainly that's the that's the misleading thing about construction companies too because the, the yeah. bills are very big but the margins are super thin when you talk about it I have another question when you talk about you know invest we touch, touched on the kind of people that you would invest into it's not just the business or the margin and number numbers uh, you know the, the biggest challenge the businesses have especially smaller businesses the the entrepreneur the founder is typically in the early days is also the visionary the leader and also the manager right and there comes a point maybe you all you are at a place when you can start hiring managers the friction between you know being a manager versus a leader talk to me a little bit about how you define the leadership versus the manager role and then also which role do you typically kind of fall into automatically in your in your, sure. in your businesses sure well I think in the leadership role uh, your primary job is you're working on the company you are the visionary 
you need to be very astute and aware of global economics, political situations. Uh, you need to be aware of social situations. We're having that right now, okay? You have to see the bigger picture. And even though maybe your company's not that big, if you understand what's going on, and then how does it affect globally? How does it affect nationally? How does it affect regionally? then state and now to my industry, you can position yourself better to understand how it eventually trickles down to affect you. So in order to work on the company, you have to get out of the minutia, okay? Um, I'm not saying you can't be detailed oriented, but you can't do both at the same time. It's literally impossible. A manager, a good manager is going to be in the minutia, is going to think about processes, going to think about people, going to think about product, going to think about service. And you have to have that very detailed oriented person that understands that for you to complete that sales cycle of what you're promising that you're going to deliver. So as I used to tell my companies, if you see me working in the company, then I'm not doing my job. My job is to try to protect the company from different factors from the outside that could affect the overall performance at the end. Yet I have to have a trust of my leadership team that is in alignment with the cultures, the values, and the visions that I've set forward. And so that's that's very important that the CEO and her their team has that alignment and trust. That's absolutely necessary. I think it's also important that a leader does not micromanage a manager. You hire them for their skill sets. And will they probably make decisions you're not in agreement with? Yes, but you talk to them on the side. You tell them why you're not in agreement and let them change it. Always put them in a role that they're leading the organization. People know you're the leader, but let them lead. Um, I think a lot of times that some CEOs make or even investors make is that we start to get involved in the details. And then without intending to, we circumvent our leaders and that creates a mixed message to the team that they're leading. And what do they try to do? They try to go around the leader. So uh, once you do make that delineation, especially in a small company, because we start off doing both, you got to truly step out of it and realize that your responsibility is to protect the health and the financial well-being of the organization and company and to make sure you have the right leadership team around you. So basically empower them, educate them, and get out of their way. So which brings me to the question about, you know, especially for a business to scale, it has, like you said, it has to be built around processes, right? Systems and processes, especially as a smaller business, that's an area that they overlook, right? And and they just think, okay, the new, new person comes, just come into the fire, learn how to do it, just run with it, right? But right. what have you seen, especially as you're investing in a lot of companies and you've built a lot of businesses before, what have you seen kind of the best practices for uh, maybe the visionary leader may need to step in and do the processes or involve the manager or maybe even having the subordinates who are working on some of those things. What are some of the best practices you've seen work well to really build the systems and processes that everybody adopts and ultimately makes the business a sellable business in the future? Right. Well, I think there again, 
um, is when you bring together your leadership team. That's why having strategic planning meetings and goal meetings are very important. And make sure all those leaders contribute. You're not lecturing to them, you let them contribute. Um, you do um, some, you know, um, what they call brainstorming activities, you know, and have everybody come together as one of what we agree on. But as I tell everybody in my meetings that I have, we have our, our retreat every year, is this is the time for discussions. But once we agree that this is the vision, the leadership and the culture, when we walk out of this door, everybody's in agreement. So um, I think good leaders, we wanna surround ourselves uh, with people that are smarter than us, that are very experts in their fields. Um, but at the same time too, can stay in alignment with the vision that we have. So, um, I think it's a constant, I call it like a dance, you know, it's a constant, it's a mutual respect back and forth. Um, one of my favorite books, it's an old time book, but I think it's the best book on leadership. Um, it's um, by John Maxwell and it's called 360 Leadership. And he talks about leading up, leading down and leading across. And in everybody's role, you do all three of those. Okay. and you need to understand in the meeting that you're in where where am i am i the one that's being led to or am i leading up to somebody or am i leading cross peer to peer um and there's different skill sets that you use for that and when when you implement that for example in our company we do a, a workshop with it and i call everybody a 360 leader Okay, because you are the leader of the responsibility that you have, but there is at a time where you lead up and then you lead across to the other people that are around you, which is part of the organization. And then there is a time where you lead down and that is where the visionary is given the actual path of where the company is going. So, um, you know, I think it's mutual respect and it's open communication which creates trust. Trust is the foundation of every successful team and every successful company. But in terms of you have, like you're, you're running a venture company, you also have a hospitality business you're running um, and you have family and all those responsibilities. In the midst of all of that, how, are there any productivity hacks that you have in terms of staying, uh, staying on track and doing your leadership role? Are there anything that you do to keep you productive? Yeah, um, I think First of all, it's, it's a concept I, I developed very early on um, was, it sounds funny when I say it, because especially now with all the technology and the tools around us, but when I'm with my family, I'm 110% with my family. When I'm at work, I'm 110% at work. And what I do is I set expectations so that people understand. So my children grew up knowing that I worked and that I had a very demanding job. But what I would do is I would set up a calendar in our kitchen and I would show them when I was taken off work and that was their time. And I'd let them plan it and I would not take calls during that time. I was 110% with them. What that taught them was, because uh, now my children are grown and I have grandkids, what that taught them was they told me they would look forward to the next time I was supposed to be with them and understood 
that mom had to work if they were going to have the opportunities for education and other things. So I was a huge proponent on quality of time and quantity of time. And I believe that both in business and I believe it in my personal life. Um, when you're 110% involved and committed to what you're working on, people feel like you truly care about them and what they think. If you're halfway there, you really haven't made an impact, you know? And mm -hmm. so um, I tend to be a planner, which means I like to plan out my days. I like calendars. I like all that stuff. I like schedule. I like self-discipline. But to me, that's what works. Um, mm -hmm. When I don't have discipline, then there's chaos around me. So, um, and then I look at discipline too, as doing what you should do and need to do before what you want to do when no one's watching. Uh, we all have this misunderstanding like, oh, productivity is all about multitasking, but what you've just said is uh, just focused work, don't just get distraction, get in the way, and if you're gonna do work, not letting anything else get in the way of actually getting productive work done. And if you're spending time with your family, give them focus because the last thing you want is you're playing with your phone while you're trying to pretend that you're you're engaged with your family or even at work sometimes. You can see people are already on their phone, but they're in a meeting. Right. Uh, and it's just not a very productive, productive and, and, meeting And, and that you people want have asked me, you know, you can do that? I said, well, I set the expectations. I'll let people know I'm taking a personal today, day today. If you need to get in touch with somebody, I have, the, I have my assistant's number there, and she knows if it's very critical, she can find me. Um, but mm -hmm. you communicate with people openly and, and let them know that they can still be taken care of. And most of the time, people can wait till the next day. They don't need to talk to you that minute. So it's, it's mm -hmm. good, accurate communication and just setting expectations. And I think when we're in this world of so much multitasking, it's very important that you do that because you'll find that you're more productive, or at least I do. I, I get so much more accomplished because I'm very focused on what I'm doing at the time. Most well, certainly. Any parting wisdom for entrepreneurs that are aspiring or actually in, in the business um, that they should, they should take heed? I would say this is that, you know, know that both in your personal life and in your business life, you are definitely going to have times of adversity. But look at those times as self-reflection and realize that you're the one that controls your destiny and it's all about your attitude. And it's okay to feel defeated, it's okay to feel down, but just stay there for a little bit and then pull yourself back up and find a goal. And once you have a direction, I call it like that little light glimmering, and you can see that light and you keep looking at that goal, you will get through those hard times. And by the time you finished it, you realize how much stronger you are because of that. So, you know, it's all about you control your own destiny and you control how you are in life. Um, I'll end it with this too, especially in the society we're in today, there's a lot of chaos and a lot of noise around us. Get out of the noise and focus on the things that are important. When there's a lot of things driven by emotion, 
try to find the facts. And then once you have the facts, you can figure out your path. And once you have a path and direction, then you will get through those difficult times. So find your path, find your direction, have goals, set them, write them down, remind yourself of them, and you will continue to move forward. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for sparing this afternoon with me and for all the wisdom that you shared. Really, really appreciate it and looking forward absolutely. to staying in connect contact. I, absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank Take you. care. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. 